Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Welcome back to part two. This is a continuation from the last episode. Are there any creative ways that a smaller investor could fly under the radar and achieve excellent yields without bidding against larger funds? It's the wild west out there. If you're an investor, if you're just an investor and you've got capital gains and you're sitting there with your accountant when you get to the end of this year and you're saying, I got this tax bill and I know about this opportunity zone stuff. I see all these funds out there. I don't know if I have enough money to actually do something with it. I don't want to learn this stuff. And I say to people like that right now, it is a bit of the Wild West. I've seen over 300 what we call blind funds, meaning they don't have specific assets they're working on. They just have a more so a specific strategy. They're raising money around that. They're taking big fees. And they don't necessarily have a level of expertise in actual fund and financial management. I think that's got a lot of investors out there who are interested in this area discouraged, and rightfully so, because they want to trust um, who their money is with. I know some great fund managers who have done specific projects. I know a gentleman by the name of Josh McCullough did his as an opportunity zone because there's an opportunity zone down there. I think Renault was the third oldest winery in the country. I have a buddy named Rich Holman, Texas guy, moved down to Medellin, Colombia in the 90s, started the only English-speaking real estate full-service shop down there, but came back up to Puerto Rico after the hurricanes. He's closed on a $10 million hotel renovation project in uh, Old San Juan last year. I don't yeah. mean to cut you off, but is all of Puerto Rico an opportunity zone? When you look at the maps, because there are a couple of good maps out there, and they'll show you kind of the spots around the country where there are opportunity zones. Puerto Rico is the only place where the entire island is an opportunity zone. Even before this, I got to tell you, the level of tax breaks that are out there, I learned a lot of this from the gentleman I mentioned, Rich Holman, who has a company called Life Afar. There's just huge levels of tax breaks for people who relocate to Puerto Rico. I know a lot of Philadelphia-based people who retired down there for that reason, run their companies from Puerto Rico, and did this even before the hurricanes, left when the hurricane was bad, but then went back after the fact and are doing fine now down there. You briefly touched on this. You said this is the Wild West. So since this is the new thing, we're talking about poor returns aside, does this mean that there will be possible scams that look like opportunity funds and how can they be avoided and spotted? The Wild West probably is a great term for it because technically it takes one form to be an opportunity zone fund, one tax form. You can even find that one tax form on our company's website so people can actually see it to see you know what that one form is. What really creates a difference in how they're able to speak to you or market to you is no different from any other 
security, any other investment that's being marketed to the public. So that means that if it's not filed with the SEC, which in most cases, potential investments, which these are, if it's not you doing it for yourself, it's an investment that's being potentially offered to the public. If it's not registered with the SEC, most times it's registered under what's called Regulation D. Regulation D is how a lot of crowdfunding and and private equity and so forth work, where it's kind of a scaled down version of an SEC filing, but at least there's certain levels of mandatory requirements need to be met by the fund manager. So I'd say that's the first step. The first step is that they are at least SEC filed or they have a Regulation D filing. But then after that is you really need to do your homework with the level of background and expertise and experience of the fund manager you're dealing with. If you're thinking of getting involved from an investor standpoint, you need to ask about their history. You need to ask about the types of deals they've done, the types of returns that they've given to investors to speak to or or a list of their reoccurring investors, not be shy about asking about these things. And especially in terms of opportunity zone funds, because this is a new area. So it is okay. And there should be an expectation that you are going to have an additional heightened level of questions. Not only do investors have to worry about potential scams, what happens if a sponsor does something incorrectly or out of code? That's exactly why the due diligence is so important. And that's why you do see the heavy move on the institutional side versus the small side, where, say, it would be a crowdfunding or something such as that, is that if your fund manager violates the requirements, then you're on the hook as the investor. You lose that tax treatment. You lose the investments being held by that qualified opportunity zone fund being qualified opportunity zone fund investments. So what happens is that the fund is penalized for being out of compliance for every month, but that it's out of compliance. At some point, if you're out of compliance for a period that's too long, you're going to eat away at the investment that's inside that fund. So that also goes back to you have to have a really good level of comfortability with your fund manager, which should always be the case across the board. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about OpZone Nation. What services does OpZone Nation provide to its clients? OpZone Nation was co-founded by myself and my partner, Tina Gunnar's daughter. We started putting it together last year, but really took off with it this year. And we're really a full service advisory for the Opportunity Zone program. So we have a advisory services arm, and we also have an educational services arm. I more so head up the educational services arm. So if you go to opzonenation.com and you'll find on the educational services side, we have a two-page worksheet for professionals to have to kind of walk them through the opportunity zone requirements and legislation to work with. We have a live course that we hold for professionals, we deal with attorneys, developers, wholesalers, brokers, accountants, what have you. That's a two-day seminar that we hold. This fall, we're introducing an online virtual seminar as well. And then I also do discussions and calls with groups and individuals around the courses and materials. So because it's so new, 
And that's why I say to people, three pages created an industry, literally. Law firms around the country, they've actually carved out areas that are now their opportunity zone fund law area and accounting firms and consulting firms have done this as well. But that means that it's new. And since we're less than two years in, there's a lot of people who just need to have a better understanding of what this stuff is. So that's what we focus on on that side to really make sure that the education is out there from top to bottom. So we have that on the educational side, and then we have the advisory services side, which is more so a collaboration with myself and my partner, Tina. Her background is family office, wealth management. She pretty much specializes in agricultural fields. So she deals with family offices looking to amass agricultural acreage to create small to mid-sized family farms. She's from Iceland when she's there. Her family deals in conversion of, call it a warehouse building to a hotel or apartment building conversions and things like that. So a lot of the traction we've seen in the space, like we were talking about before on the institutional side, is people with specific projects in mind. So we set up Opportunity Zone funds for institutions or for individuals that are really self-managed funds where we set it up and we sit in an advisory role, depending on their needs, whether it's completely placing the fund for them or they have something specific in mind. So we're more so in an advisor position. We do that as well as working gains investors looking to place in specific funds, because like you mentioned, or like we've been talking about how I said wild west. So mm-hmm. if it's the wild west, you can, yes, you know, if you have your own apparatus to go through, choosing funds and deciding which ones you want to participate with, you can do that. But then we also work with groups who would rather have us because of our level of expertise and understanding do that for them. So that's what we do on the advisory side. And then, as I mentioned, the educational services side. So OZs sound like they come with a lot of rules and regs. Can you tell us what you think the most overlooked or misunderstood rumor about the OZs that you heard is? I think the most misunderstood thing is We're in this political arena where everyone is pointing fingers at each other. And everyone needs to make everyone else the bad guy. Everyone needs to make everyone's idea the bad guy. Everyone needs to make everything have bad intention. And I think that that's the furthest from the case with opportunity zones, where, yes, there's a lot of rules and requirements, but there could be a lot more, and there aren't. And right now, there's a lot that you can do with it, yes. And can you be responsible with it? Yes. But can you be irresponsible with it? No. I mean, yes, you can always do both with most things. So I think that what's misunderstood is that this is going to be some vehicle for those who have wealth and means to get richer. To those people, I say, well, otherwise, there was not going to be an incentive for wealth to go into areas that it otherwise was not going to go. And if we're creating new things, whatever it be, we're creating new development, new construction, new jobs in these areas, that's beneficial to the families and the people and all of us. So I say that to those groups who say, this is just a hand me out. I make sure they know, well, this, no matter what, this is something that's creating an improvement. And that's one of the biggest things I think is misunderstood. On the other side of it, I think what's misunderstood 
in which we misunderstood in terms of development a lot is if you live in a community and you want to see positive change in the manner in which you want to see it, the best way for you to voice your change is to be vocal on your zoning board, be vocal on your approvals for your township, for your city. If you're, say, in a place like Philadelphia, be a member of one of the community groups that has to be asked to sign off on improvements inside an area. So you have more power than you can ever realize if you choose to use it. And that's what I say to the groups who say, well, they're going to make over this area into something that won't be for me anymore. Well, make sure they know what you want and what's best for you and have a voice so you can have an attempt to make improvements work for the people who are there already, but for people who will come in with new dollars and new perspective. Is it true that because the tracks were slightly outdated, they're talking about adding new census tracks? Well, the tracks are in place. I believe it's every 10 years, and then they go up for renewal to see if there'll be change or new tracks will be added. I think that legislation like this sometimes is so difficult to get through the first time that we should kind of work with what's there. I think there's 8,700. That's quite a few tracks. I think that we should focus on improving what we have that's in hand, because even within this 8,700, some of the biggest concern is that the only ones that will be touched within that 8,700 is a very small group that were inside already improving areas because it was written by the 2010 census track and we're in 2019. So an example of that is there's an area of Dallas called Deep Ellum, an area of South Dallas that has been improving for the last five to seven years, but not the last 10 years. But Deep Ellum is an opportunity zone. So you already had $25, $50 million projects going up on there two years before this was even decided. So will areas like that get bidded up when you talk about prices getting up, going up? Yeah, probably. Will the plots of land to get developed in those areas run out sooner than later? Yeah. And when that happens, is money going to go into these other 8,700 census tracts across the area as long as we see success of this program? Then, yeah, hopefully it will. Is Fishtown in one of the tracks in Philadelphia or Kensington? You know, Kensington, there's a good amount of track area up when you get into Kensington. And there's a lot of tracks along Broad when you stretch on the side of Vine Street heading towards Temple and Temple Medical. Unfortunately, everyone I guess saw in the news over by Temple Medical in Nice Town Tioga section where there was the barricaded shooter from a week or two ago that whole area right in there is an opportunity zone and it's really because believe it or not i was at a community event a couple weeks ago and the high school that had the most deaths from the vietnam war was a high school that was over in the tioga nice town section of philadelphia in the whole country the high school to have the most people killed in the Vietnam War was the high school that was in Nice Town Tioga over near Temple Medical where that shooting incident went down because during that time period, that's how long that specific area of Philadelphia had been going downhill. And that, quite frankly, when the historians talk about it, they just put in the perspective of that's how hopeless the environment was at that point in that high school. It was still better to go to Vietnam, even given what you knew the higher possibility of death was still better than being at home. And that gives you an idea how 
honestly the history of how tough that area is and even why you see the situations like a couple of weeks ago, the group headed by a gentleman named Anthony Miles, tppfunds.com. They have an opportunity zone fund over in that area in Tioga around Temple Medical and are trying to do great things. That's one of the reasons why. I would say that's a group really trying to do it responsibly, but profitably at the same time. But you see why areas like that have been pegged as opportunity zones. And even more so, you see why I say those 8,700, let's just hope the top half or top third of those 8,700, someone touch as many of those as they can. Do you recommend that people invest in large funds or try to do deals on their own? I think it depends on the type of investor you are and level of interest. No different than you're someone who works in real estate or if you're someone who just likes to go to the local real estate investor meetings or someone who just likes to watch HGTV on the weekend. All of them like real estate. All of them like different degrees of real estate. Everyone can think opportunity zones are interesting and everyone can play in a different space in them. So if you're a real estate professional who was already inside these census tract areas doing projects, if you've got investors and you're not doing things under an opportunity zone framework and you're already operating inside these census tracts, you're committing malpractice. Because what are you doing talking to an investor saying, oh, I've got one project and fundraising for that and then having to do the next and having to do the next. You still have to show your investor your project, but why are you not doing that within a fund framework where you now have a 10-year relationship with that investor and that's worth it to them because they're getting a tax advantage on it? And just because you didn't want to understand what opportunity zones were, that's not acceptable. If you are a developer working inside one of these areas, you need to know this stuff. You need to have some level of it set up so that if a portion of your investors are dealing with gains, you can have funds set up to deal with that. If you're someone who works in the real estate field where you're not in these areas and you didn't plan on going into these particular tracks, that means that you had a strategy in place, had your spots that you like to pick and plan. So no particular tax advantage where you don't get the full advantage of it from 10 years should stop you from going down a road that you had already predetermined you were going to go down and they're confident in that road. So in the case of that, I say, hey, find a fund that you're comfortable with that you want to invest in. But because you're inside the field, maybe you want to do it with someone who's local that you know who's decided to do this versus the guy who watches HGTV on the weekend, right? Right. The guy who watches HGTV on the weekend, I say, hey, you're more than likely your brokerage house has an opportunity zone fund option set up. If you're at a Morgan Stanley or a Bank of America or or wherever, I don't know for a fact that they do, but I'd be surprised if they don't. If you want to get a little more creative about it, you can go to a group like they're called Cadre, C-A-D-R-E. One of the Goldman Sachs guy created it. It's more of a tech platform investment standpoint. Tech platform investments, you still got to be a qualified investor to be involved in them. And being a qualified investor means you're worth a million dollars or you make $200,000 a year. If you're a couple, that means you can make $300,000 a year. So all these investment platforms, just like when I talk about Reg D filings for investments, you have to be a qualified investor to get involved in these from an investment standpoint. There are some filings that allow for so many non-qualified investors 
There are platforms out there that are for non-qualified investors. I don't necessarily know how I feel about that. I was around during the Great Recession to see what it's like when you're you know, at a private equity real estate fund and an institutional one, but your first investors are usually high net worth guys or people who aren't institutions. So when you're saying to the money manager of a pension fund, we were paying you out 10%, but it's a great recession. So we're going to pay you zero for the next year. And then we're going to get you back up to a three. The guy who's running a pension fund says, wow, you guys are great. That's impressive. Keep fighting a good fight. The guy who's a high net worth guy says, I put in 20% of all my investments with you. That's my money. That's my family's estate that they're living off of. And you're holding that guy's hand saying, we're invested in the funds as well as employees. We're here with you to make sure that your investment is preserved during this worst time since the Great Depression, that in the minimum, we can make you some return off it. And we did that. The funds that I had to raise as I was leaving were those funds that hit 14, 15% return funds, even though they were just MES funds because they picked their spots really right. I guess that's why I give that very long-winded answer of where different types of investors should play depending on if you're watching HGTV versus actually hitting the hammer in the house. Now we're going to shift it over. We do a kind of a rapid fire question, just things that come to your mind, three questions. So... What was your first job? Acme Grocer off Route 70 in Medford. The Acme is still there. What book are you reading right now? Hans Jonathan, The Man Who Stole Himself. It's a true story written by a man from Iceland about a slave from St. Croix back in the late 1700s who left for Copenhagen and ended up being the first black man to live in Iceland in the late 1700s. And it's his true story. Who is your favorite person to follow on Instagram? Well, you're not, I don't have Instagram. I'm not. Oh, old. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a Twitter? <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't have Twitter either. Okay. It's all good. Thank you for giving us your time today. How can the people get in touch with you, Antenna? Check out our website opzonenation.com o-p-z-o-n-e-n-a-t-i-o-n.com both of our emails are up there our contact information is up there our backdrop about information on us is up there about opportunity zones everything you would ever need to know is all up there and we're really good about getting back to people if you throw us an email all right thanks Vic again i'll talk to you soon yep thanks guys Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.